Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast coming to you from a place called Santa Barbara, California, about an hour and a half north of Los Angeles and um, good distance in general, although sometimes it makes it difficult to see concerts or sports events, etc., But um, at any rate, uh, thank you for joining the show today. Today is another episode of Ask Buck. This is uh, episode 301 now, so it's not quite as special as episode 300, but it is uh, the start of a new, I guess, a century of shows or something like that. Before I start, I wanted to give my condolences uh, to the Gosnell family uh, Jerry Gosnell passed away last week. He was a, a very, very big part of our wealth formula community and just wanted to just, you know, listen, he, he was on our podcast. Um, I interviewed him about, a, I don't know, it was about two years ago. You should go back and listen. Uh, Jerry's, a, Jerry's a really good guy. And luckily, you know, he uh, was very responsible with all of his finances and stuff. And he's, you know, he's kept his family in good shape. But um, again, Sorry uh, for the loss to the uh, Gosnell family. And uh, we will continue and carry on his spirit because, man, was Jerry, he was like a super fan of the community and is very well loved. So today, again, we are going to go through a whole list of uh, questions, as many as we can do. Uh, a couple things, though. You know, there you might be wondering if, you know, maybe your question wasn't answered, why that was. Sometimes I got to be careful because I think some of the questions, I do appreciate them, but the, they're so individualized about your personal situation that effectively it's hard for me to say I'm not giving you advice when you are kind of asking me for advice. So I got to be careful because I am not a CPA. I'm not a registered investment advisor, a tax attorney, or anything else that would qualify me uh, to give you advice, certainly in this uh, situation here. So that may be why I'm not reading your question. And also may be that your question was very, very similar to uh, another one. So that's the other reason. But tune in here. And if your question gets answered, great. And otherwise, um, it could be on the next one or it might just not have been something that I was uh, I felt comfortable doing on the show. OK, so we will get to those aspect questions after these messages. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. 
It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits. And it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession-resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show. You know, I always am uh, very much partial to the questions that you ask me via video. So I'm going, I have one more here that I'm going to play and we'll start with that one. This is David. Hello, Buck. Um, I really appreciate you taking time to answer our questions like this. And this may be a question that's going to be asked a few times because the law is changing. But I'm wondering what uh, your view is on the fact that they're sunsetting the uh, the bonus depreciation law and how you're going to be um, moving forward in, in terms of taxes um, as it relates to um, dealing with like capital gains and not having to pay as much in taxes. Will you simply uh, focus on 1031 exchanges or is there some other some other vehicle that you guys are working on? Um, thank you so much. I'll look forward to your answer. Thanks for the question, David. So let's just review again so everybody's kind of uh, on the same page. Now, first of all, why is this important? I really think it's important if you don't understand bonus depreciation, cost segregation analysis, for those of you who are listening and don't uh, understand what David's question is here, make sure you start with the last Ask Buck episode because we spent a lot of time on this whole bonus depreciation, cost segregation analysis stuff, which is critically important to real estate uh, investing. Um, but so to get to your question here, David, just as a review of the actual legislation, so 100% bonus depreciation is intact for 2022, this year. And then it goes down by 20% every year, and then it is essentially is phased out in 2027. Now, if you do not understand, again, the significance of bonus depreciation as it relates to real estate and cost segregation analysis, I'll say it again. Please listen to last week's episode of Ask Buck. But again, before I try to answer that question, let me also preface my comments by saying I am not a CPA or tax attorney, so I'm not giving you advice here. But let me say a few things about your question. So, David, in my humble opinion, I would say that, you know, the best immediate strategy is to maximize the law now, right, by by racking up these paper losses through investments that you make. Because even if you can't use them now, you can carry them forward for other gains. I mean, so the depreciation losses are, you know, they're losses like anything else that, that don't disappear, right? Like you, if you've got a bunch of losses, you can, you're going to hold on to them uh, until you use them, right? So that's one thing. The second, even though bonus depreciation is scheduled to sunset, you know, over this period of time, we really just don't know what's really going to happen, right? Legislation is always changing. And to project out five years 
in what I would call a schizophrenic political environment would be kind of pointless, right? So focus on what we can do in the immediate future with the laws that we know are relevant right now. And again, even next year, we're still at 80%. And if you do the math like we did last uh, last week on Ask Buck, you can see, okay, so maybe you invest you know, your profits and your, you know, some level of your basis, your initial investment, you still could potentially wipe out, you know, most if not all of your gains. So, so again, take advantage of what is now. Don't worry too much about, you know, one or two years from now because things could and likely are going to change in some manner. Now, three, I would say, although bonus depreciation may go away uh, because the legislation is suggesting it goes away, cost segregation analysis is not going away. There's no legislation or anything, any reason to think that it would. It's simply an engineering study that is, you know, separating out real property from personal property. And personal property is depreciated over five years, you know, even without any sort of acceleration from bonus depreciation. So even if there's an expiration of bonus depreciation, you should, in theory, still get 20% depreciation per year just as part of the cost segregation analysis. Okay, so maybe it's not 100, but it's, you know, it's 20% and it's split over five years. So anyway, you can continue to build up those losses. Unfortunately, you know, your question about 1031, there's really no good way to do a 1031 exchange in a syndication model, unfortunately. But I would just say this too. Again, we're trying to look at, you know, from now to 2027, that is a million years in the investment world when it comes to taxes and stuff. Because usually the tax game, at least for me and for most people I know, is a year to year, what's the law, what's the rule, how do we you know, how do we use the law to our advantage from a year-to-year basis? And understand in the tax world, and from what I've seen, necessity creates ingenuity. And so, in other words, stay tuned to see what we can do in the future. Hopefully that answers your question or addresses it a little bit. I know it's a little bit unsatisfactory, but it is what it is right now. Next question is, a written question from Zheng Li. Uh, Zheng says, hello, Buck. I've been an avid listener of your podcast. Thanks for all you do. I know 2021 was a year of cryptocurrency where a lot of people seem to have jumped into it a lot more. And I'm curious what you think of the future of cryptocurrency lies, thinking about not only Bitcoin, but also Ethereum and Solana and some of the other currencies. And I'm also curious on your thoughts for NFTs. So, well, uh, Jung, uh, thanks for the question. First, NFTs. With regard to NFTs, I answered a question about what I think of those on the last show. So go back to that. But let's 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 uh, let's talk a little bit about you know my thoughts on cryptocurrency, which you know I've, I've mentioned before, but I think it's worth mentioning. Um, you know, I'm certainly not the authority on cryptocurrency. I am uh, more knowledgeable than than most. Maybe a little bit more knowledgeable than what would be considered dangerous but uh, by not much more. So I split cryptocurrency, digital currencies, into two main buckets, okay? First, Bitcoin, and then there is everything else, okay? Now, to me, and I think to others, there's, there's a camp that thinks like me, that there's Bitcoin as digital gold. And I think that, you know, institutional markets, Wall Street, everybody is you know, is essentially legitimized Bitcoin as a source of uh, uh, 
of digital gold uh, as a an asset that has value. But uh, that's where, you know, I think the irony is too, right? Because that Bitcoin, uh, you know, when it was the original Bitcoin paper and the Bitcoin people, they were sort of like, you know, rebellious, supposed to be, you know, create an economy outside of the Wall Street economy and all that stuff. But what's happened is that the irony is that, you know, is the fact that Bitcoin has actually been adopted by Wall Street and by mainstream economy. Uh, and now that is really what's driving up the price so much, right? So it's kind of paradoxical um, because, uh, you know, the very thing that Bitcoin was trying to get away from is essentially driving up the price, which is, you know, which is becoming part of, you know, ETFs and institutional investing and all that. Now, of course, right now, as you know, if you're in the market, we do have a pullback going on. And that only amplifies another one of my opinions is, you know, again, related to the fact that Bitcoin is ultimately become a mainstream asset. The fact that Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies are following the other markets, to me, says that it is not different from the other markets. It's not walled off from the rest of the economy, right? And it's not too surprising, right? Uh, it really isn't that surprising to me. And now, listen, if Bitcoin is digital gold, then what is everything else? Well, essentially, the rest to me is either software or some sort of mem coin, right? There are tons of legitimate currencies, digital currencies out there. And what are they really? I mean, they're really essentially kind of like stock, right? They're stock except in distributed ledger based um, software companies, right? And they're not owned by one company. They're owned by the people who, uh, the, the tokens, right? But there are lots of them that are legitimate, and they're all, you know, these software companies are different from Bitcoin. Bitcoin is digital gold, right? Rest are like, it's like the dot-com era, right? And what happened in the dot-com era? Well, most people remember that most of those dot-coms died off. You know, like pets.com and all that, they went south and they, you know, went to zero and all that stuff. But it's also important to remember that in that dot-com era, that was also the era that brought the likes of Amazons and Googles and all those companies, that the tech companies that changed the world and made some people very, very rich. And to me, that's essentially what's going to happen uh, with cryptocurrencies, uh, with the non-Bitcoin cryptocurrencies that represent some sort of software or applications. There will be some that do very, very well. And then there will be most that go to zero. So I think that's how I see it. I don't see it as a flash in the pan. I think it's very real. But I think it's yet to really declare itself, and it will continue to declare itself over the next few years. As far as Bitcoin goes, what do I think? Again, it's my opinion, but I think Bitcoin, regardless of where it ends in the next, you know, week or two, I'm still thinking $250,000 Bitcoin um, within five years. I believe that to be the case. I think a lot of people do. That leaves one category of cryptocurrencies, which is the mem currencies. And the mem currencies like Dogecoin and, and Shiba Inu. Now, I could be wrong about these, but I see no value in them at all. And I see them pretty much doomed to fail as nothing more than fad. So that's kind of where I'm at in the cryptocurrency world. Again, that's my opinion.
next question is from John. Uh, John says, Buck, I've been uh, enjoying your weekly podcast. I was wondering if you would provide some questions and answer sessions in the future. Uh, well, we are actually. So I'm, I don't know where I got this. Maybe, maybe I, I pulled this off an email. Anyway, he says, we are planning to sell some of the properties we held since 2010 uh, in 2024, because we don't think price appreciation can go much more, but expenses are rising. What are your thoughts uh, with the liquidity event if you're in the same situation? Well, if you were thinking of selling in 2024, John, I guess my question is, why wouldn't you just sell now, right? We're in a hot market. You've been holding since, I don't know, it's like over a decade, right? Well, you said 2010, 2010 to 2024 versus 2022, I would guess you've probably gotten significant amount of your appreciation. But personally, if it's me, I'm thinking taking chips off the table because, you know, listen, you could potentially make more money by selling in 2024, but you could also not make as much money in 2024. Does it make sense, therefore, to hedge by selling some of some, maybe not all, but some of those chips off the table, I would think so. But again, I'm not here to give you advice. Maybe you could think about it this way. Maybe if you're holding it that long, you can sell enough assets to at least get out your initial investment and then keep the rest going sort of in a quasi-infinite return model. I mean, that's another concept, right? But I, I am a big fan of this idea of, of taking some chips off the table right now. And that's certainly what we're going to do within our investment group this year as well. It doesn't mean you have to liquidate everything, but it's about hedging, right? Taking off some profits, maybe half your profits or whatever, and then letting the rest ride and see if it goes even further. Now, going back to the second part to think about, uh, of your question is why else might you want to uh, why else might you want to sell now as opposed to wait until 2024 well you know going back to that question of bonus depreciation phase outs that we had a little earlier if you sell this year you can reinvest with a hundred percent bonus depreciation and probably you know offset your gains so you know you've got the tax advantage situation there whereas in 2024 you know you'd have bonus depreciation going down to, I guess, 60%. It's not bad. I mean, you could still probably offset a lot of that by reinvesting basis at that point, but it's not 100%. So there's another reason to consider selling now instead of 2024. A third point to consider would be interest rates. Okay, they're going up a little. It's not a bad idea to take some chips off the table. Uh, and again, we're doing that in Investor Club, um, you know, with our assets too. We're not selling everything, but we are definitely hedging. Um, and I think you probably already know that because you're part of the investor group. But hopefully that answers your question. I mean, certainly, you know, that's what I would do. I would certainly think about it in terms of any assets that you own that are significantly appreciated right now to, to seriously consider, you know, taking some of those chips off the table right now. Okay, next question is from Scott. Scott says, in what circumstance could cap rates rise as the Fed tries to keep rates down? Well, I think tries is the operative word there because, you know, cap rates and interest rates kind of, you know, follow each other, right? So it's what actually happens, right? So let's, let's review this. So understanding the relationship between cap rates and interest rates, it's, it's actually really critical. First of all, what is a cap rate, right? Let's get really basic. Well, it's simply the net operating income 
divided by the current market value of the property. Okay, again, net operating income divided by the current value of the property. Now, another way to think about that, which might actually be easier, is it's the yield that you would get if you paid all cash for that property. So a cap rate of five means that if you bought your real estate all cash, no mortgage, your yield, your investment yield would be 5%. So why do interest rates affect cap rates? That's the next question. What do you use leverage for? Well, you you use it, hopefully, to amplify gains. And in order to increase your yield, to increase that 5% cap rate, to do a return of 8%, 9%, whatever, the interest rate on a mortgage must be less than the cap rate. Because if it's not, what's going to happen? If the interest rate is greater than the cap rate, then you're going to lose money, not make it, right? So that's why they follow each other. Think about that. You know, you're not going to do a 6% mortgage in a five cap building. That means you're going to have like, you know, you're going to lose money. So again, cap rates follow interest rates. And if interest rates are lower, you can buy a building at a lower cap rate, right? Because you can get the debt to lever up that yield. And of course, sellers know this, so they can offer the real estate at a lower cap rate, right? And the cap rate for real estate, of course, is also based on supply and demand in a given market. Now, Los Angeles, for example, is going to have a much lower cap rate than Oklahoma City, because cap rate is usually also inversely proportional with the you know potential appreciation of the market. So you're you know there's lots of things that go into that, right? Like you're also you know you might get a short term, you might get more cash on cash, but the appreciation you're not going to get. So you, the, that that's what those cap rates are factoring in. So while in general, though cap rates um, are moving in the same direction, you, you're going to find some different deltas in different markets. So long story short, I mean, the answer to your question, in my opinion, is it doesn't really happen. Market cap rates and rates and interest rates will uh, will move in tandem. All right. Next question is from Ernie. Ernie says, hi, Buck. Thank you for taking the time to share your insights and wisdom with us. I prefer writing because I think I can be more concise than when I speak. So here's my question. Okay. Uh, well, thanks, Ernie. I'd rather hear your voice, but that's fine. That's fine. Given the longish lockup period for the ATM fund, and he's referring to the WF Velocity ATM fund, which I can talk about because that is a Reg D506C offering available only to accredited investors. But he says, uh, do you expect there to be a significant reduction in the real returns in the face of a current, currently high inflation, which will likely not abate? For quite some time, your other syndications, the projects he's talking about from the Investor Club have a way to be indexed to whatever inflation turns out to be over the lockup period in that the sale price will have accounted for inflation that has occurred over the period. The ATM fund does not seem to have the ability, that ability uh, from what I can see. Well, see, and then he says, but this, uh, this isn't part of the question, but it seems to me it might take a couple years of inflation to normalize, but it won't be in the 2% range the Fed is looking for. Hence the reason for my question. I don't have a crystal ball, but I've watched the Fed get it wrong over and over again. Yeah, yeah, that's true. 
So Ernie, it's a good question and it's a type of stuff you really ought to be thinking about as you're investing in in these types of things, okay? Now, as you know, what you're talking about is this WF Velocity ATM fund, which essentially has a straight line of returns, monthly returns for seven years. Now, the cash on cash is very high, but it's like a bond at the end of the day, right? So like a bond, the value of your real returns is correlated with what inflation is. In other words, if you're getting 25% cash on cash, which gets people, particularly the less sophisticated investors, super excited right away, and you say like 24, 25% cash on cash, that is... Um, you know, that number in real number yield is going to be better for you if inflation is running at 2% than it is when it's running at 6%. That's very true. So it's like a bond. It's the same concept, even though it is equity. It's, it's you know, this one is a straight line uh, return. So how do you potentially mitigate the effects of inflation uh, on those kinds of returns? Well, one of the really good things about this is that the cash on cash is very high, with uh, which means the internal rate of return is very high, which means it takes account the time value of money. Okay, all I'm trying to say here is that your capital return is pretty quick. You know, if you're not taking into consideration the taxes, uh, tax benefits, it's four years. If you are, it's three years. The math will tell you very clearly what you need to do in order to mitigate the effects of inflation on a straight line return like that. And that is invest those returns that you're getting on a monthly basis is back into something else as soon as humanly possible. In other words, you know, if you got $25,000 coming back from your uh, ATMs this year, make sure you, you know, in my opinion, I'm not telling you to do anything, but if it's me and it is me because I have a lot of these myself, I quickly reinvest them back into other stuff. And and that's what the math will tell you. It's just a matter of velocity, as we always talk about. It's about, you know, maximizing the internal rate of return. Now, the other point uh, that you bring up is a good one in that the, you're talking about the other stuff that you said is indexed to inflation. Not really quite indexed per se, but what I think what you're trying to say is that, okay, most of what the other stuff we do is real estate with rents and real estate um, apartments and stuff, right? And these types of assets inherently hedge inflation. Why? Well, what is inflation? It's basically the cost of living. So if the cost of living goes up, it's, uh, you know, it's reflected by inflation. And that means our rents are going to go up as well. So we're offsetting inflation. And that's why the vast majority of my investments continue to be in real estate because I would rather hedge. Okay, I think that is all of the questions I'm going to do for now because uh, that's a that's a lot of uh, that's a lot of information. And you might it might be a value to go back and listen to some of those things again. Okay. With that being said, we'll be right back after this break. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Now, before we go, I do want to, uh, first of all, encourage you to continue submitting those great questions, uh, ask buck questions. You can go to the website, wealthformula.com, and that's where you can submit those questions, again, preferably uh, via uh, audio, because that's going to make it much more likely that I will air it, because I'm a lazy to, too lazy to read, and so just pushing a button and listening to you is much more, uh, much more my speed. 
Now, before we go, I also want to mention that wealthformula.com is also where you're going to go if you want to you know, sign up for some of our various lists. We've talked about some of the things happening in Investor Club. If you are an accredited investor, go to wealthformula.com and sign up for Investor Club. And the last thing is, for those of you who uh, have submitted you know, significant um, sort of personal questions and financial. It's not that I don't want to answer them. I just can't in these these kinds of settings, right? I want to remind you that there is a forum, though, called Wealth Formula Network. I mean, this is all we do in Wealth Formula Network. When people have questions, they come in and they ask questions, and then they get not only, you know, me to pipe in, but you have a whole group of, you know, very smart people piping in on stuff as well. Uh, Wealth Formula Network, you can sign up for that at wealthformularoadmap.com. So when you go there, it's really talking about a course and and all that. And there is. It's a great course. Tom Wheelwright, Kay McElroy, all these really great people. But then uh, the the value of, you know, having that um, background from the course is that then you're participating in our community. And our community is not just uh, the Facebook page, although that is part of it. It is also... Uh, bi-weekly Zoom conference calls, which we have, which, um, you know, I think everybody's a big fan of. So it's a, it's a really good opportunity. You know, I think those of you who've gone to our Wealth Formula events, uh, they are similar to those kinds of things, those same people, and uh, people are really into it. So check it out, wealthformularoadmap.com. Again, that's wealthformularoadmap.com. Finally, if you're enjoying the show, make sure you also leave us a review, five-star review, leave some comments, something that's what helps keep things, uh, you know, ranking high and all that stuff. That's all I have for today and this week. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not facts. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.